Welcome to the Marketing Science Podcast, the podcast for sales and marketing professionals working within science, engineering, and healthcare. My name is Frank Barker, the head of marketing at Azo Network, and I'm joined by my guest this week, who is a growth mindset leader and the CEO of Refine Labs. He's originally from a science and engineering background and currently runs the Demand Generation Podcast all the way from Boston, Massachusetts. It's uh, Mr. Chris Walker. Chris, how are you doing today? Fantastic, Frank. Thanks for having me today. Excellent. How are you staying sane during lockdown? What What's your sort of social distancing vice? Yeah, so it's really actually kind of interesting. Um, if I look back in my notebook, I started and I, I got back from a vacation actually on March 17th. And that was the day that Boston got locked down. And the day and then I opened a new notebook. And uh, in the notebook on the first page, I wrote the next 12 months can change my life. The first step um, that I took was to have one, a good mindset, and two, a very clear routine. And so um, have set a very structured routine um, as to how I go about my day. And um, that's been the foundation for me being able to continue to execute. I actually feel like we've made a lot of progress and innovation in the way that we're executing right now based on this time. Watched a podcast, started a YouTube channel, doing a live Q&A show every Tuesday night um, on Zoom with we get 30 to 50 people on there live asking questions every week. And so um, just adjusting. Oh, cool. So um, you mentioned that the demand generation or the state of demand generation podcast there. Um, how's that going? How's I mean, I'm sort of entering the same sort of process and, and you know, bringing guests on and editing post production, all that sort of stuff. How's that? How's that taken off for you? Yeah, it's fantastic. We're taking a little bit of a different approach to the to the podcast. So typically people would sit down and film or record something like this. And so what we do actually is we mash together a lot of different audio clips. And so sometimes it pulls from things that we didn't design to be a podcast. So like, we'll go out and we'll film an event that we host where it's a fireside chat and a live Q&A in person. We have a high quality video from that. And then we rip the audio from that and it becomes a podcast. Or um, I take a 10 minute consulting session that I do with someone with their permission. And then that becomes an episode on the podcast. So, um, I found a way to hack it where we can have a high quality, um, production without needing to have a completely separate arm and dedicated resources in order to do it. Yeah. Well, repurposing, re-engineering content straight out of the content playbook. Great to see. Mm-hmm. Um, um, in fact, we've seen that's how I first uh, came across uh, the podcast was actually following you on LinkedIn. I, I was shared shared it by a colleague of mine, um, and it's, it's those lovely little sound bites that you do. Sort of, it's only sixty seconds long or whatever. It's it's perfect for LinkedIn, really, isn't it? Just um, a, a, a complex topic or something that you make a bit more simple, and you can just pop it um, on LinkedIn. We mentioned your science and engineering background. How has that influenced uh, the kind of marketer that you've become? The foundation that I have in understanding products and being able to talk, speak with them on a technical level and interface with engineering. And if you're selling complex products, then being able to communicate those effectively, those pieces all matter when you go and actually execute. Um, and so I think that is an interesting foundation. The second piece is that, like, uh, it's an interesting analogy, but like at some point I was coding like uh, firmware for microprocessors. And when you're doing that, there's a ton of inputs and outputs. And um, so I look at things at like a system level in terms of, of marketing. And so there's a lot of different inputs and there's a lot of different outputs and then they go through this and then they happen in this way. And so if you, and I don't think a lot of people look at it at the entire system level, they look at it in a channel. 
or they look at it in a, in a specific piece of content. And if you're able to elevate and look architect the whole system, um, I feel like you just get a much better product and you use the different channels in the ways that they were designed to be used. Okay, fantastic. So, um, you, I mean, you, you've come from that, obviously, the, the analytical background, the logical um, engineering background. What do you find uh, is more important in marketing now, uh, creativity versus an- analytical thinking and evaluative um, process? Are they mutually exclusive? Is it a scale or are you able to find marketers nowadays Nowadays, when you're recruiting for marketers? What do you look for? What sort of, which of those traits and characteristics do you look for? In order to lead a company, I believe you need both. In order to lead a demand gen function, I think, and, the, and those people are rare. I lean toward analytical, but I respect, and I've taken a lot of time to understand the creative and how much it matters what type of picture you put inside of a Facebook ad matters deeply to whether or not it works. And so I've learned that over time and I use the data of how people are interacting with the ad to tell me whether or not it's working so that then I can make adjustments. And so I look at it. If you're running 20 different pieces of creative, you can start to get insights and then those insights then feed the creative process. So to get back to your question, I think the answer is both um, at the high level and obviously in the micro level, if you're running performance marketing, you want someone that's super analytical. If you're like building a new website, you probably want someone that can write good copy and design well and also think about it from a conversion rate perspective. So as I talk through it myself, I feel like they're both important and I think it's very rare to find someone that's very good at both. But important to have both of those, certainly both of those uh, characteristics and skill sets on the team. Uh, yeah, at least if you can't find them in one person, certainly recruit them in, in different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, um, how long how long have you had Refine Labs now? It's about fourteen months now. Okay. So, still relatively early stage. But how? Um, what's the most challenging thing about uh, running a business and leading a business like that? I'm not sure that there's a thing that I find ultra challenging. Like I, I love it. Um, I think that the, uh, the really important things is probably as you start to scale, having the right people, like it ends up coming down to building a company as you need the right people. And so, um, hiring and management and, um, those types of things are probably the most important, the place where I'm focusing a lot of my effort right now. Um, the, the marketing and sales and customer acquisition and actually performing the work is all pretty straightforward to me. We have a good process. We have, um, we have a good differentiated, unique offering. Um, we have a unique go to market approach. So like an interesting thing is like when I started this company, everyone told me to build an outbound sales team and, uh, and I didn't, didn't do it. We don't have any people and we don't have any people in sales. We've never made one single cold call. We've never sent one cold email. We've never run a dollar in ads and we've managed to grow pretty dramatically on the back of organic content marketing done well. And so, um, I think that's a learning point. I believe that most early stage startup companies face that exact same question and 99.9% of them build the outbound sales team. And I think they would grow much faster if they did it the other way. I mean, also more efficiently and then not needing to raise so much money and then not having so much pressure to grow in order to raise the next round. And because of that initial decision, I think it creates a lot of short-term bad behavior downstream. Okay. So you mentioned the process is quite straightforward. Just for the listeners, outline what it is, what demand generation means and how that differentiates from lead generation and how it would fit into, um, into your model. Most companies do lead generation. 
which is that every single execution is measured on how many leads they got. And typically when you're running lead generation, it's you doing something in order to capture someone so that you can go outbound and sell to them. That's basically what it is. Um, and I flip it on, flip it around, which is that I do a lot of different things in order to create inbound opportunity. And when you have people coming inbound that are trying to buy from you, they close faster. They want at a much higher rate. They're usually a lot better fits. Um, and so for all of those reasons, I've used a lot of different uh, communication strategies in order to create awareness about myself and my company and the people inside of our company and the good work that we do, which then leads to people um, having the opportunity to understand how we might be able to help them. It, uh, the first step is getting someone's attention. And, um, and most people skip that step and just try and convert and then try and sell them something, which leads to the low percentages in the sales funnel. Yeah. Okay. So you're obviously working, uh, I think your sweet spot is, is working with SaaS companies or the SaaS model now. Um, but having come from you know, the previous engineering background, what do you think the, the science industry, particularly with the longer sales processes, um, what can the science industry learn from, from the SaaS model? There is so much um, that they could learn. Basically, when I worked at a medical device company, I studied SaaS companies. And then I took, I studied SaaS companies, I studied B2C e-commerce marketing, and I took those elements and I made them work in a medical device model. And it worked way better than what medical device companies were doing. And so, um, so where do we start? Let's see. Um, I think uh, a couple of first things that come to mind. One, we work with SaaS companies that sell long sales cycles, 30 to 180 day sales cycles, um, expensive recurring revenue model products, typically long implementation times. Like it's pretty much the same type of sale, even though there's non-recurring revenue model on top of the scientific model. And so um, I think a couple of things they could learn. Um, a lot of those companies sell through distribution. Like that's one thing. Uh, I mean, a, dis a distribution model made sense in 1980. I truly question whether or not it makes sense anymore to give away 40% margin for someone that you have to market to anyway, distributors have become order takers. So if you're not creating the demand up front and you have, so basically you have to create the demand and then you're paying someone 40% to deliver the product and potentially install it. And so like I, I, uh, that's one thing that I see industrial manufacturing and other company and medical device companies and others do that. I think they should really tr understand whether or not it makes sense to do that anymore or whether it would make sense to build it, control the entire customer journey and all the data behind it, control the customer success, the implementation, all those pieces, and then also recoup the 20 to 40% margin on top of it. Yeah. Certainly makes a lot of sense to unify the single customer view and get all of your marketing data in one place. Um, and of course, who wouldn't want the extra 20 or 40% in this instance uh, margin that you, you talk about? Um, okay, so the next question uh, is, how can marketing managers um, or how can marketing maximize their time, energy, uh, effort and resources when they're attending trade shows? I know people that will build a little station and film and get 20 long form interviews and podcasts and have content for six months. You should bring one person that knows how to create content and you should bring one videographer and you should create a bunch of content. Everyone's there. All the thought leaders, all the best customers, everyone's there. And so like, um, that, that is how I started to, to change my 
event strategy, whether it's trade shows or field marketing events or whatever, is that if you do the sales stuff on the side, and then if you're actually going for marketing is create content at the event and the value happens in the amplification of the content after the event online. Absolutely. So we're big proponents of the same sort of uh, repurpose, re-engineer and reuse content um, and really squeeze uh, every last drop of of, um, value out of the content that is so hard to create. It's very hard creating uh, top quality content. Um, Okay. So how are you seeing clients respond uh, in terms of their participation and their thirst for, um, especially given that uh, trade shows have been uh, been cancelled for now? Um, how many clients are starting with virtual events? How have you seen those implemented? And I suppose, give us your take on on the virtual event. My whole thesis is that consistency, repetition, and quality over a long period of time actually gets the results. So one event where you have 20 speakers and then it's done is one thing. I actually think there would be more value in having 20 events with one speaker each. And so how do we make the how do we make value out of a live event? It needs to be active, like part- active audience participation, which is why I've moved like we're doing it right now and I'm seeing some the results from it is we just do a live Q&A. Like people show up because they want to ask their question. And so we've been doing that on a weekly basis. The the cost to entry super low, an hour of someone's time that knows what they're talking about and a little bit of like either effort or energy or money to promote it. And you get, you know, 30 to 50 people there for 90 minutes every week. And that, over time, that creates depth and value. In addition, you get so much content that you that you can then redeploy on all the other channels that you're trying to play on. And so I consider it a content pillar where there is some value in the event, but actually most of the value happens in the content post-production and distribution other, elsewhere after the event. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So... Next question. When measuring the success of campaigns, um, we mentioned it briefly before about qualitative versus quantitative uh, data. At what point does data seed to your gut feel or how do you sort of, you think you think something's working, but you're not quite sure, but you persevere. How, how do you sort of, well, do you have any examples of, of instances where you've done that? It's interesting because, and I, I posted about this recently and I can kind of break it down, but I typically look at data to confirm things that I'm already seeing. And so for instance, um, like we start working with a company. And so one of the first things that I do is I fill out a demo request form on their website and see what happens. And so I'll go there and I'll make up a name and I'll make a company that makes sense. And I'll make up a job title and I'll put in my phone number and my email address and I'll fill it out and see what happens. And so in some companies, like I'll fill out the, the demo request form, and I'll get a, I'll get an email like four hours later saying, hey, saw you this thing. Can we book some time? And I'll be, yeah, I'm not free at that time. And then we'll go back and forth. And then basically I'll just give up. And then like as we start like doing the marketing and generating leads, and then I'll think back to like, okay, like I think it feels like if like I've seen this at 10 other companies. When we started doing this, the leads would actually start to close significantly faster than the outbound channel. But we're not seeing that. What's going on? And then I'll look at the data and be like, oh. Well, it's taking 18 days between them filling, a de- filling out a demo request and them actually getting a demo. Like, no wonder why we're not winning. And then I'll take that data and I'll bring it to the CMO and I'll say, hey, like, this is a problem. Like, we, if, if I was like, put yourself in the shoes of the buyer. If you go to a website and you ask for a demo and it takes you 18 days to get a demo, what are you going to do? 
you're going to go buy somewhere else. And so um, I, I think that's one like interesting example. Like you feel it, you see it qualitatively either on your own, you put yourself in a buyer's shoes, being empathetic, whatever. And then when you actually need to go and show someone else why it matters, it helps to bring data, ideally data from customers. Yeah, cool. Um, next question. So moving on, we've got um, a question come in here. It says, my audience doesn't use Facebook or Instagram at work, um, but you still push it quite heavily. How, how do you reach people using Facebook and Instagram, even if they're not necessarily in the workplace using it at the time? I've heard... I cannot tell you over a hundred times. Oh, my audience doesn't use Facebook. Facebook is a B2B or a B2C only platform. We need to use LinkedIn or, you know, my audience is too professional to use Facebook. They're doctors. And then all it takes is five minutes to go into the back end of Facebook ads manager, type in the job titles or industries or interests or professional associations or what they studied in college or anything, and it'll spit out to you how many of those people use the platform every month. And I've never had a place where it's like, nope, none of your people actually use it. And so people just use it as an excuse not to do something new. They'd rather continue to go to their trade show booths. They continue to rather build brochures. They'd continue to rather send spam emails to people that don't get results. And so, I mean, I, I think it's an excuse. Um, and so if we look at it, like the time that I figured this out, I was in, um, I was in a pediatric intensive care unit at two in the morning. Okay. And, um, and while I was in there, like it's quiet and I looked around and I was looking at the nurses and the respiratory therapists and the physicians that like, it's quiet. They're not really taking a lot of taking care of patients. It's like people are asleep and there's no visitors there. And so besides looking at patients, like, what are they doing? And almost everyone was doing one of a couple things. They were watching videos on YouTube. They were scrolling through Facebook or Instagram, or they were using Snapchat at that time. Snapchat's a little less, uh, less prevalent now. And so I looked at that data and I was like, Hmm, why, why can't we show up there? what would we need to do for them to be scrolling through their feed and then read something that would be interesting about us? How do we do that? And then I went on a little journey to figure out how. And so, and it doesn't matter to me whether the, the nurse is in the pediatric intensive care unit or she's go, walking to yoga or she's at the grocery store. She's the same person and we're trying to deliver information. And so I don't care, to be honest, whether or not they're using it while at work because it's about delivering messaging at any point. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Uh, so you meant, mentioned about delivering messaging, um, delivering collateral. So what process do you go through whenever you create a new piece of collateral? Um, step one is to understand the audience. I'm sure there's people listening right now where if I said, when's the last time you went and visited someone that doesn't use your product and talk to them for an hour, not trying to sell them something, it wouldn't be within the last month. And I think that's a problem. And so first step is understanding your audience. And as you start doing these things, you actually become integrated into a community and you feel like you can communicate with them as a peer. That is the objective. And then what am I trying to accomplish with this communication? It's a very simple communication framework. Um, and so I think about it and I'm like, hmm, if I could just 
if I was able to d- distribute this piece of content to 50,000 people that might be interested in having my thing and all they would take away is that we launched this new feature and I paid 35 cents for each, each person in the audience that I'm selling to, to know that that's a win for me. And I break it down to that level, but everyone else, if they're trying to run Facebook ads, they're like, I want to get a million leads. And they try and go from people that have never heard of you before to buying your thing in 35 seconds. And that's just not how it's going to work. And so I break it down into very small chunks. And I know that over time, as I deliver messaging and I educate people, that they will know where to find me when they're ready to buy something. This is a this is straight up demand gen, not lead gen. And so I want them to know that a new feature came came out. And then three days later, I want them to know we integrated with this new tool that I know that they use. And then I want them to see that a different company that's like them, you know, increase their revenue by 35% by using this new tool. And then I want them to know that um, we just partnered with this, uh, this really large company that's rolling our product out to 50 of their locations. Um, and then I want them to know that uh, we're hosting a webinar about something that they care about, not a sale, uh, not a webinar to pitch our product, which is what most people do. Um, and you just go and go and go. And then that is uh, the difference really, if you like simplify it, is that what I'm doing is communication. I'm just trying to communicate things. And, um, and I think that that has been something that marketers did in a, a long time ago. And for some reason, we've kind of lost that. Uh, I don't know what it is, simplicity or um, thoughtfulness. I'm not sure, but that's how I do it. Okay. Um, so I've judging while well, looking back through the some of your linkedin posts uh, there's one particular post about brand versus performance um I, i'd tie that into short term versus long term or even educational versus commercial commercial um what, what can you explain briefly what you mean by brand versus performance i think that it comes down to your intent like what are you trying to accomplish so performance marketing is i want to put a certain amount of dollars in and i want to immediately get a certain amount of results that i can prove and so therefore companies are going to build a pdf and then they're going to run ads on it and then they're going to hope that people click on the ad and download the pdf and they actually they don't even care if they read the pdf they just care that they filled out the form so they can have their metric um and then on the other side is what i call brand which is like yeah educational um, where, or communication and messaging that I just talked through, like it's what, how am I going to educate or create value for someone without the expectation of getting something for me that exact moment that I can measure and attribute so I can go and tell executives that what I did worked, even if it didn't. And so like a lot of people that are running performance marketing are running performance marketing based on a leading metric like leads. And so what only they care about is that they got a hundred leads at fifty dollars a lead? They don't even they don't even look or care about whether or not those converted to revenue. Like they weren't educated, they didn't have a need. Like we just basically created a way to to have a metric that said that we did something good. But when you actually look at the business results, it wasn't moving the needle. So how I mean, performance marketing is is more sort of short term. You can measure it here and now. How would you go about measuring brand? And, and the impact that your, your marketing is having on, on your brand? 
And I think there's a couple different ways to look at it. So if we're talking about like, for instance, the thing like a new feature release that I'm going to run uh, a Facebook or a LinkedIn ad on to, to have people understand that that thing happened. I'm targeting emergency room nurses. I know that I can hit 90% of them if I combine Facebook and LinkedIn together. And then I'm going to track how much did it cost to, to have someone actually get to the article. And then I'm going to track time on page in Google Analytics to know whether or not they read it. And then I'm going to figure out, okay, how much is it costing me to have someone read that? And then I make a choice as to whether or not that is worth the cost. Okay. That's at a very micro level. At a macro level, the things that I'm going to do to measure. Um, the first one I think is, is really interesting when you target emergency room nurses and you give good content about a clinical trial that came out. And then those emergency room nurses tag the ER medical director in the post. And you can click on their name and you can see that they tagged them. That's interesting. That doesn't show up in a CRM. That doesn't show up in HubSpot. doesn't show up in Google Analytics. That's probably the most impactful metric you can look at. And then another thing that's interesting, but how much does it cost us to, to acquire a customer? And so I'm measuring it on inbound sales conversions and how much revenue is that generating and how much money are we spending to make it happen? And so that's, that's one. And the last one that I'd offer is that we um, will buy branded search on Google AdWords all day. Um, mainly because I just think it's worth the cost. Like if someone's searching our brand and I'm going to pay 90 cents for them to click on that ad instead of someone, uh, one of our competitors bidding, trying to bid above us, it's worth 90 cents to me. So that's one. And the second thing that's interesting that we're starting to use is that if you're bidding and you're number one Google and you have 100% impression share, you can actually track the exact volume of branded search that's happening in Google. And that's an interesting metric to measure brand. And so... um we see if we run heavy cam- heavy Facebook campaigns targeted that we drive more organic tr- search traffic, branded search, whether brand or non-brand, but branded search goes up too. And so like, that's interesting. I think that's, a, I think that's an interesting way to look at it because the, and the reason that people don't do a lot of the things that I'm talking about is because they don't understand how to measure it. Like I just broke it down. I just broke down how difficult it is. Um, I just broke down how, you know, if you brought that to your CFO, I know that the CFO is probably not going to buy into that. Um, but does it work better? Yes, it does. Yeah. So what, okay. What is the biggest challenge with marketing attribution and and I suppose how important is multi-touch point and being able to measure each of the different touch points, uh, to the modern day marketer? Um, this is going to go probably against what 99% of people would say, but I really don't care. Um, it doesn't matter to me that I measure the channels based on what I should be measuring and what I can measure. And I don't make people jump through hoops, which most people do in order to measure something that shouldn't be measured. And so can we measure Google ads direct response? Yeah. Can we measure, um, how, like whether someone went to the website and filled out a form once they fill out the form? Yeah, we'd be able to measure it. And so like I can use the data to stitch together the things that I need to know to make educated decisions. But the things wrong with multi-touch attribution is that it can only measure what the system can measure. And so you either design your marketing in ways that I just think are not smart in order to accommodate the system so that it can measure it, like making someone download an ebook when you should just give them the content. Um, and so um, people design their 
their marketing executions in ways that accommodate the tech more so than the customer. Um, and so that's one. And then it misses all the things that are ma- that matter. Like um, when I'm talking to some a client of ours and there is a, they have an issue with their system and I know exactly what product I'm going to recommend so that they can go and get it and they're going to go inbound and you know, the company is going to look at the multi-touch attribution and be like, oh, our SEO is great. And it's going to drive them to do the wrong things because I just told them to buy and they can't measure that and they have no idea. Um, and so that's uh, that's how I feel. I feel like it's um, unnecessary. Uh, it's driven. The idea of doing it is driven by tech vendors pushing their products and that it often drives marketers to do the wrong things. It drives them to do the things that they can measure, not the things that work the best. And uh, ties in with, with the question that we, we've had come in as well, um, where you, we've all been at some stage of our careers where we've created an ebook or a, you know, poured our heart and soul into a piece of content. It, it's time intensive, it's resource intensive. We've created a, a webinar or ebook or a case study download or whatever. Um, the, the question is, uh, how does gating affect lead quality? So to gate or not to gate is the, uh, is the question. Um, I don't gate anything. Um, I try and remove all friction because in content marketing, you have to decide what your goal is. I posted about this today. Is your goal to collect a lead so that you can either measure their future activity, send them nurturing emails, or have a salesperson call them? That's why people gate content. Or is it so that they can actually consume the content, which then leads them to maybe considering your product as a solution? And so my goal when I create content is to help people understand me, feel um, an affinity toward me or what I do and learn something new. And all those things go together. And so when you put a form in front of your ebook, I, I posted about this today, a couple of things happen. One, because your intent is to collect the lead for your sales team, not to actually create good content that people want to read, you end up not creating very good content. You put a nice headline on it so people submit the form, but when you actually get into it, it's not very good. And the whole point of content marketing is for it to be good. And so I think that's one kind of like intangible effect that happens there. It all comes back into the educational versus the commercial and the sort of short term and the long term. It's fascinating uh, the way you look at it because most marketers are measured on leads generated. So Mm -hmm. let's, let's gate it. Let's stick a form on it. For sure. And that, that's, you know, I've, I've done it. I'm sure you've done it. I'm sure everyone listening who's done any marketing has done that before in the past. Mm -hmm. The thing that I learned, which is super interesting is that when I was gating the eBooks, I recognized one, what the conversion rate on the form was. So you can see how many people you're preventing from reading the content by putting the form up. Mm -hmm. It can be like the conversion rate can be anywhere between 10 and 50%. And so if it's 10%, do you want 90% of the people that actually clicked the link and wanted to read the content, not read it by putting a form up there? That's one. The second thing is if you're running it through like a form and then running an automated email back through for someone to click on to actually get the content, look at the click-through rates on those emails. It's less than 10%. And so like no one's actually... And then if you actually set up the system to look at how long people are reading, even the people that do click are skimming through and leaving. And so you just spent all this time creating an ebook and no one actually even read it. Yeah. It, it brings us back that, that friction between sales and marketing. Um, 
you know, brand versus performance. What do you measure? Um, which KPIs are most important for aligning sales and marketing? You know, bear in mind that we just talked about lead generation and marketers are measured on lead generation. Um, whereas salespeople are measured on ultimately their number or how much they're closing, how many, the, the number of new business accounts that they bring in. So which, which KPIs or what's the mindset for aligning sales and marketing? This ends up coming back to the top two or three people in a company and how they act and what they measure and what they do. And so, yeah, then um, they become sales focused, not that focused on marketing and or or sales just becomes more important. Let's put it that way. And so if sales becomes more important, then the marketing team has to start doing the things for the sales team. And so then they start measuring the marketing group in the in metrics that they think matter to the sales team, which are typically, I, I, I've been recently comparing it to like sales dev metrics. Like if you have, if most companies measure their marketing team as if their marketing team was sitting there doing a hundred cold calls every day and wondering how many leads they were going to get. That's how they, that's how people are measuring their marketing team. It's just a different, they're doing the same thing in just a different way. And so, um, you have those metrics, which is, we need this many leads and then the marketers do the wrong things to get that many leads because it's unrealistic. And then those leads, because they did the wrong things, don't close to revenue. And then the sales team comes back and says, your leads suck. And then that's how the misalignment's created. But if you look at it at the core, it's because of the top two or three leaders and how they set the expectations in the company. Fantastic. And I suppose a couple more questions before we wrap things up. How important is culture looking at those top two leaders um, or two or three leaders in the company? How important is culture when, when setting your business up and setting your business culture up? How important is that the way that it ripples through the rest of the company? I mean, I, I feel like this ultimately falls in this, on the CEO and what they prioritize and how they act and what they do. Um, and so like a long time ago, I worked at a company where um, it was, I reported into the vice president of sales and marketing. And this is very, very similar to what companies are doing today in SaaS, which is calling it a chief revenue officer and putting them in charge of both marketing and sales and account management with the, in the pursuit of alignment. And so I saw this back in 2013. It was very black and white clear to me. I continue to see it with some CROs already right now, which is that this, the, that VP of sales and marketing was actually just a VP of sales. And the CROs that are getting promoted 98% of the time are probably a VP of sales that was promoted and therefore is going to drive their marketing team to do things that they think are the right things in pursuit of sales, not actually marketing. And so if you look at a lot of tech companies right now, I see a lot of tech companies that have built two sales teams. They don't actually even have a marketing team because their marketing team is doing everything that a sales team should be doing. Um, and so I think it's really interesting. Um, at a, at a culture level, obviously it's important. Um, it just comes down to what is important. And if you look at a lot of, uh, if you look at a lot of venture backed companies that have raised money that need to continue to raise money in order to raise the next round of funding, they are sales, sales driven, financial driven companies that do the wrong things in pursuit of short term metrics to continue to be in business. Um, and so, I, I think that we're starting to see some of those. I know it's not probably not relevant for a lot of people on the podcast, but I think we're starting to see a lot of that play out. See a lot of huge companies with 5,000 employees that lose a, a billion dollars every year because they've raised money. They have to lay off half of their work staff 
this month because they didn't actually have a real business. Mm. Um, so yeah, culture is important. Yeah. Okay. And finally, before we wrap things up, um, how do you see the next, um, three to five years? How do you see us coming out of, of this, um, isolation, depression, uh, recession at the minute? Um, how do you see the next three to five years for, you know, uh, market leaders, particularly in sales and particularly marketing? Um, how do you see that playing out? I think most companies that are listening to this allocate far too much budget to sales to make up for the lack of proper marketing execution and results. Um, and so right now I would imagine that a lot of companies are probably struggling to sell stuff with their sales channel. Like uh, the, for the companies that do field sales, you're not visiting that manufacturing plant or that laboratory to sell your stuff right now. Um, and so with that, I think a lot of companies are recognizing maybe we need a better way to communicate with our customers. And so I think some companies will adjust. They'll figure out how to do marketing in a better way. And then they'll kind of propel themselves to have a potentially a different go-to-market model. I think for a lot of people, sadly, um, as we come out of this, they'll go back to doing the same stuff they were doing before, as if not not much changed, um, which is too bad because as this unfortunate situation has put pressure on a lot of different business models and you feel the pressure and you don't consider making some pretty dramatic changes to how you're going about your business, I think is a huge risk long-term. This is exposing, I find that this period of time is exposing business problems that have been there for a long time that have been hidden because of the economic situation. The past five years has been a very good global economic climate. Um, and companies have been very, been able to still grow at 10 to 40%. Um, and now as wallets tighten up and things change, you re you recognize that maybe we were just growing at the rate of the market and we actually weren't doing a lot of things right. And now we're, now we're declining at 10%. How you're, I think the core of it actually is how you're doing marketing. Mar I think that for most companies right now, especially B2B complex sales, um, you've run the same go-to-market model since 1997. Hire a lot of salespeople, go outbound. You might have changed your tactics, but it's pretty much the same. And, um, and because of that, I think um, changing the way that you do marketing then relieves the pressure of having so much sales, so much pressure on the sales team and so much investment in sales, which then opens up a lot of other opportunities to build better products, invest more in customer success, change your distribution model, uh, innovate. And so I think a lot of companies can't do those things because they have so much money tied up in a sales channel to continue to grow at the rate that they're supposed to. Yeah. All right. Brilliant. Thank you. That just about wraps things up for today. Chris Walker, thank you very much for coming on and sharing your expertise. Um, good luck with this State of Demand Gen podcast as well, which is, I believe, available on Spotify, iTunes, and all the usual podcast players, as indeed is the Marketing Science Podcast. As ever, if you like what you hear, please do subscribe, uh, like, and share us via LinkedIn. And be sure to follow Chris on LinkedIn uh, for more pearls of wisdom. Chris, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, please come back again soon. Thanks, Frank. Thanks again to Chris there. If you have a question or subject area which you'd like us to address, please reach out at azonetwork.com slash podcasts or via LinkedIn. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week when we geek out on Salesforce with Ricky Lowe, CEO of Kumos Consulting. We'll see you then.